Well, please uh, turn in your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. While you're making your way to Romans chapter 1, a thought occurred to me while we were worshiping this morning. It was several years ago when we were serving in Legrand that my good friend and senior pastor came to me and said, I'd like to try something a little bit unique. I'd like to, to team teach a sermon. And so we put our heads together, and it was probably one of the most challenging sermons that we have both ever written. And together, in about an hour's time, we preached the whole book of Isaiah. Yeah. That's probably not the optimal way to preach a message, but it is one way. And there are times in the life of a church when an overview of a book like Isaiah is an exceedingly helpful thing in the life of a church. Let me just tell you, that's not the approach we're taking in the book of Romans. So this is the seventh message in the book of Romans, and we have only made it through verse 15. And that is likely the pace that we will take for the remainder of this book. And so, no, this will not be a series that will last several months. This will be a series that lasts... A long, long time. And because we love the Word of God, we're excited about that, right? Amen. Absolutely. And so, I know I'm excited about pouring through uh, the book of Romans together with you. We have been learning about the Apostle Paul and his heart for the nations. In Romans chapter 1, verses 8 to 15, we, we got an inside look at Paul's heart as he very carefully outlined what we refer to as the marks of a stalwart missionary. In verses 16 and 17, as we transition to a new unit of thought, here's what we discover. The love that Paul the Apostle has for the gospel literally explodes before our eyes. The gospel, in verses 16 and 17, becomes the focal point. As we study together these verses, I want you to always turn your attention back to the gospel. And let me just give you a heads up. And we'll read the passage here in a moment. Verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, for it, And you ask yourself, well, what is it? What is Paul referring to? He's referring to the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Verse 17, for in it, do you see that little word? And you ask yourself once again, what does the it point to? Guess what? It points to the gospel. And so we see that the gospel now is the focal point of this passage. Indeed, it is the, stands at the core of Paul the Apostle's life. When I say that the gospel is the focal point of Paul's life, here's what I mean. And it was interesting because Doreen and I are in the middle of premarital counseling with one couple. We just finished premarital counseling with another couple. And so as I was thinking about the focal point of the gospel message, two men came into my mind. Marcus, you came into my mind, and Jordan's helping with PowerPoint this morning, came into my mind because in a few weeks, Marcus will be married, and several months down the road in September, Jordan will be married. And so I was thinking about you guys when I was thinking about the focal point of the gospel. And here's the illustration. 
Imagine Marcus, and Marcus, you're going to love this illustration. Jordan, you're going to love this illustration. Imagine that one of these men, that they are standing with me in the venue that they will be married and there's all sorts of things that they can be preoccupied with. The, the groomsmen stand on one side. The bridesmaids are at the other. The ring bear and the flower girl and, the, and all the beautiful decorations are in place. The flowers are in place. Parents are there. Aunts are there. Uncles are there. Grandpas are there. Grandmas are there. All their friends are there. And there is so much on this, this amazing day that Marcus or Jordan could be preoccupied with. That is, until the music begins to play. And the bride begins to make her way to the front of the venue. At this moment, there is only one thing on the mind of the groom. Let me give you a hint. It's not baseball. It's not the latest Netflix series. It's not race cars. It's not computers. It's not some kind of a hobby. There's one thing that these men are fixated on, and that is their bride. Their eyes are focused on their bride. Their hearts are beating rapidly. Why? Because their beautiful bride is coming ever so closer to them. And in a few short minutes, after they sit through a very long sermon... I'm just kidding. <laughs> I will have the opportunity to say, And now you may kiss your bride. And it is my distinct pleasure of introducing to you for the first time and the name of the couple will be uttered for the first time. This is exactly how Paul the Apostle is fixated on the gospel. There's so much that could compete for his attention. In the first century, there's so much going on. There are controversies, there are doctrinal discussions, there are divisions, there are schisms. There's exciting discipleship taking place. The church is growing, the church is exploding. But the gospel is fixated and etched into the mind of the Apostle Paul. Here's what the gospel did. The gospel governed his thoughts. The gospel governed his every thought. The gospel governed his aspirations. The gospel governed his ethics. That's something we need to remember in a very sharp way on this day. The gospel governed his worldview. The gospel governed literally everything in the life of the Apostle Paul. And I want to ask a question before we read our text this morning. And it's an important question that I want, I, I, I want it to kind of bug you. I want it to get under your skin. I want you to think about it. I want you to write it down and to, to think about it this week. Can the same be said of you? That is, does the gospel govern everything in your life? Every dream, every goal, every plan, every relationship, every friendship, every future aspiration, every desire, everything in your life. Can the same be said about you? Does the gospel govern your thoughts? Or has the world and this worldly system taken you captive? 
Does the gospel govern your aspirations? Or has our culture duped you into living a life that stands diametrically opposed to the word of God? Does the gospel govern your ethics or your morality? Has the worldly system tricked you into embracing a kind of ethical relativism? This is something that I see all the time, not only among secular people, but I see it in the church. That many Christians have been absolutely deceived and duped into believing the lie of moral relativism instead of having their hearts and minds fixated on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Does the gospel govern your worldview or have you been seduced by the spirit of the age? There's a German word. It's one of my favorite German words. It's the word zeitgeist. That is translated spirit of the age. And so if you, have you been seduced by the zeitgeist? May I remind you, one writer said it like this. He said that he who marries the spirit of the age will soon become a widower. Convicting words. Does the gospel govern the whole of your life? Nothing is excluded. Or have you been duped? Have you been deceived? Have you been tricked by the world? The title of the message this morning is The Gospel-Saturated Life. And I want to prepare you for not only today's sermon. I debated on whether or not I should tell you this because I don't want to scare anyone away. But we're going to be in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 for the next four weeks. That should tell you these are exceedingly important verses. Now, we don't pit Scripture against Scripture. We don't say verse 16 and 17 is more important than verses 1 and 2. Why? Because all Scripture is God-breathed. It is all profitable for doctrine and reproof and training in righteousness. But these verses are verses that I I can't get away from. These are verses that we'll discover Martin Luther couldn't get away from. These are verses that that literally changed Martin Luther. That's That's a horrible way to put it. These are the words that God used to regenerate the Roman Catholic monk that was trying to earn his way to heaven. And so we want to look at the gospel-saturated life together. I want to have you stand to your feet and we'll read these two verses. And remember, this is the word of the living God. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Lord, I am eager to continue to dive into these two verses. And I I pray that we would all be on this journey together for the next four weeks as we unpack the words and the theology and the, the deep meaning that lies in these verses. We thank you for your servant, the Apostle Paul, who who penned these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for Luther in the 16th century, a a guy who was troubled to the core, a guy who had great motives, but as a Roman Catholic monk, he he was trying to earn his way to heaven. And we thank you that you use this passage 
to transform his life. And as you transformed his life, you, you transformed a nation. And that nation moved forward and, and the world was transformed all because of the, the Protestant Reformation. So, Lord, would you open our, our eyes and open our minds to the truth of this passage? Would you unplug our ears? Lord, for those who are not yet Christians, I pray that a mighty work of grace would would take place today as they would hear the gospel and see and savor it for the very first time and that you would transform them like you transformed Luther and like you have transformed so many people here in this place. And so we're eager to dive in. Help us now by your spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let me give you the brief overview now that I've totally shocked you to let you know that we're going to be in these verses for the next four weeks. Paul makes a series of four statements or affirmations about what we're referring to as the gospel-saturated life. We're going to look at the first statement this morning and just really focus in intensely on that statement. And the statement is found in verse 16. Here it is. He says, number one, I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's the first assertion. That's the first statement. I am not ashamed of the gospel. And as we look at that first statement, the strategy I want to employ this morning is to have you look with me at four headings, four very important headings. Let me give those to you in advance and give you a roadmap for the sermon this morning. First of all, I want you to see the context of the gospel, the context of the gospel. Then we'll turn our attention for a moment to the content of the gospel. And then third, we'll look at the concern of the gospel. And then here's the big one. Number four, we will look finally at the consequences of being ashamed of the gospel. And so first of all, the the context of the gospel. I have a book, and it's been one of my favorite books for many years. And you can usually tell that I like a book if there's lots of bookmarks in it, and you open it up and there's lots of yellow highlighting. Sometimes I wonder why I highlight, because there are certain books that I own that the whole book is highlighted, and so you really don't know what's important and what's not. Well, this is one of those books. This is a book that was originally published in 1647. This is a book that was assembled by what we refer to now as the Westminster Divines. The Westminster Divines were a a group of Puritans, a group of pastors and theologians who got together and they produced the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is an absolutely powerful, powerful piece of literature And I decided to go to the Westminster Confession of Faith to help you understand the context of the gospel. And there are some snapshots in the Westminster Confession of of Faith that I like to refer to as the black backdrop of sin. The black backdrop of sin. And what I have done is I have reformulated and reworded at great fear on my part, the words of the Westminster Divines, really to save some time and to save some space and to make it more understandable for you. But let me give some of these snapshots concerning the black backdrop of sin. 
Number one, our first parents were seduced by Satan and they sinned when they ate the forbidden fruit. You know the story about how God told Adam, you can, treat of, you can eat of any of the, tree in the gar- trees in the Garden of Eden, but the, knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And so Adam knew very well, Eve knew very well what the prohibition was. Eve ate the fruit, she gave the fruit to her husband, and men on Father's Day... It is Adam's fault, not Eve. Adam, as the covenant head of his marriage, bore the responsibility and bears the responsibility for that first sin. And so our first parents, we see, were seduced by Satan. They sinned when they ate the forbidden fruit. Number two, by this sin, they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled. I want to focus just for a moment on that phrase, dead in sin. I've shared this story several times in different venues, including Christ Fellowship, but I remember when I was ordained... It was a long time ago. We came to the section, and I I made a big, big deal out of this notion that sinners, all sinners are dead in sin. And here's what one of the members of the ordination council asked me. How dead are we talking about? How many of you are thinking about Princess Bride? (laughs) Listen. All sinners are dead in sin. They're not mostly dead. They're not three-fourths dead. They're not 99% dead. They are deader than a doornail. In fact, they're so dead that when the gospel is presented to them, you might as well show a, a, a beautiful Rembrandt painting to a blind man. You might as well have a blind man look at the beauty of Mount Baker. Guess what? He can't see it. You can pray, you can play the most beautiful music you've ever heard, and that's in the eye of the beholder, right? Some of you like classical music, some of you like rock music, some of you like country music, whatever style you enjoy, you can play your favorite song for a man or a woman or a boy or a girl who is deaf, and they will not hear it. That's what this principle teaches us about being dead in sin. The only way a sinner will respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ is if the Holy Spirit regenerates his or her heart and makes them willing to believe. The Westminster Divines say, thirdly, that their sin was then imputed to every generation. Their sin was imputed to every generation. That is, when you have a baby, that baby is not only born in sin, that baby, that child is conceived in sin. Fourthly, from this original corruption, whereby we were utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do proceed all actual transgressions. I think we can summarize that by saying we are in deep weeds. Sinners are in big trouble. They lack the ability. They lack the desire. They, lack, they, they, have, they, they have nothing within them that desires to love God, serve God, please God, worship God, or trust in God. Finally, this sin places us then under the wrath of God. Unless 
And until the sovereign grace of God secures our release. If we are to ever understand the gospel, we need to understand this context. We need to understand the context of the gospel. That is, if you don't understand that you have an inherited sinful nature from your father Adam, you have no need whatsoever for the gospel. If you don't understand that you are dead in sin, you have no need for the gospel. If you don't understand that you don't have the capacity to worship God, serve God, please God, serve God, apart from grace, you simply have no need for the gospel. If you don't understand that you are under the wrath of God, you have no need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you don't understand that you are on the fast track to hell and that you will bear the weight of all your sin forever and ever and ever, you will have no need for the gospel. Yet so many in our culture want to sidetrack or marginalize the doctrine of sin. They want to set aside the context of the gospel and tell sinners that God loves you just as you are. You don't need to do anything. What's that tell the sinner? I might as well just keep living the way I live. And so they need the context of the gospel. They need you to explain it to them. Listen to what the Word of God says now about lost people. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. There are some here this morning at Christ Fellowship and Thus far, everything that I have said is absolute foolishness to you. That's what the Bible says about the unregenerate, the unconverted mind. And so we need to tell people about the context of the gospel. We need to labor over this point. They need to understand their lost condition apart from grace and without Christ. Listen once again to Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam... And death through sin, and so death spread to all men, that is all peoples, because all sinned. And so with a better understanding of what we're calling the context of the gospel, look with me next at the content of the gospel. And there are three categories you'll see in your notes that I want to explore just for a moment. First of all, the meaning of the gospel. The meaning of the gospel. Back in Romans 1.16, when Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, it becomes critically important that we understand what that gospel is and what it entails. Euangelion is the Greek word, and it means this, the good news concerning Jesus Christ. The good news concerning Jesus Christ. It is His divine dominion and the way of salvation by His death and resurrection. Let's move forward and look on the slides to the the content of the gospel. And as we look at the content and begin with the meaning to understand the basic thrust of the word euangelion, look next at the message. The message. And we explored this a few weeks ago as I summarized the gospel message in about 30 seconds. That the gospel begins, always begins with God. 
This is one of the reasons I always struggle with the tract, and you, know, you all know the tract I'm referring to, that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That tract begins with you. I believe that when we share the gospel, when we preach the gospel, we don't begin with man, we begin with God. And God is holy, holy, holy. He is the holy creator of the universe who recognizes that man, because of his sin, is lost, dead in sin, without hope, and without God in the world. He's a sinner by nature and choice and is under the almighty wrath of God. And so what does that God do in His infinite mercy? He sends the Lord Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, and Jesus dies on a wooden cross for the sins of everyone who would ever believe. And God raised Him from the dead on the third day. And then he invites, and he not only invites, but he commands all people to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And built into believing is the biblical idea of repentance. To believe is to repent. You recall a few weeks ago I shared this this, uh, very important theological reality. Run away from anyone who says that repentance is not a part of the biblical gospel. And you'll hear it. You'll hear it all over the place. They'll say repentance is not a part of the biblical gospel. The opposite is really the reality. At the very heart of the gospel is repentance. And so when you hear me challenge you to believe, what I mean is to cast all your hope and future exclusively on the Lord Jesus Christ and turn from your sin. Turn from your sin to receive salvation. Look next at the magnitude, the magnitude of the gospel. As I was studying verse 16, this thought occurred to me, and the word magnitude actually popped into my mind as I considered this. This gospel, think first century, would begin, do you remember the city it began in? Book of Acts. It begins in Jerusalem, and it spread to Judea and Samaria in in concentric circles. It starts here at the hub in Jerusalem, and it goes, as Acts 1.8 says, to, to, to Judea. It goes to Samaria and all the ends of the earth. In other words, the gospel would be an unstoppable force in the lives of every one of God's elect. Can you believe that? It begins with a group of of ragtag, uneducated, blue-collar guys. Some of them were fishermen, right? And that's the guys that God used to to cause the gospel to explode, starting in Jerusalem. And so the gospel is the only hope for sinners. Just for fun, would you say that with me on three, that the gospel is the only hope for sinners? And say it with enthusiasm. One, two, three. The gospel is the only hope for sinners. Now go out into the marketplace of ideas and say that to someone this week and see what kind of response you get. Oh boy. There will be people that will not like that. You will be called a bigot. You may be called a racist. You'll be called intolerant. You'll be called narrow. You'll be called a Bible basher. You'll be called a fundamentalist. You'll be called an evangelical. But the fact remains that Jesus Christ, the gospel, is the only hope for sinners. Nothing more and nothing less. Which means... That sinners simply can't rely on their works. Sinners can't rely on their wisdom. Sinners cannot rely on their brains. Men, sinners cannot rely on their brawn or their muscles or their good looks. 
This gospel is the only lifeline that sinners have. And so Jesus Christ is the only answer. And so my question is, are you banking all your hope and future exclusively on Jesus Christ? Nothing more and nothing less. We've seen the context of the gospel, the content of the gospel. Now, I want to dive in deeply and have you look with me at the concern of the gospel. The concern of the gospel. Again, verse 16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And what we need to do is we need to wrestle very carefully about the, with this question. What does it mean, or rather, why would anyone be ashamed of the gospel? You ever wonder that? When you learn about the God-man who came and, and died on the cross for your sins and, and will give you eternal life if you would simply believe in His completed work and turn from your sin, you'll be forgiven of, of all your sins and spend eternity on the new earth with Jesus and all the saints forever and ever. What kind of a fruit loop would be ashamed of that message, right? And so that's why Paul says, Paul says, I don't want to be the fruit loop. I am not ashamed of the gospel. The word ashamed comes from a Greek word that means to be a person who has feelings of shame or guilt or embarrassment. When it comes to the gospel then, there are two things that I believe can cause a person to be filled with shame. And we need to wrestle with these. First of all, we can be ashamed of a proposition. And I want you to wrestle with this and over this with me because I think some things will, will surface in your mind because if we're all honest, we have all had seasons in our lives or little moments where we had this little twinge of, yeah, I'm not going to say anything right now because I'm going to be ridiculed. Yeah, I'm not going to say anything about the gospel or, or admit I'm a Christian because you know what the results will be. To be ashamed of the gospel is to be ashamed of a proposition. What does that proposition entail? Well, it entails an exclusive gospel. Now, if I would have preached this message 30 years ago, it would have, it would have had weight, it would have communicated, it would have preached, but not like it preaches today. Because he, I would even argue, even in the last couple of years, that the exclusivity of the gospel is causing problems in the world. Would you not agree? People have a problem with the exclusive gospel. What do I mean by the exclusive gospel? Well, the gospel posits a very specific Christian worldview. By definition, this gospel requires that you believe in one God who reveals himself in three persons. Now, we could stop right there and just talk about that. You think about the controversial nature of, first of all, one God... And then one God who reveals himself in three persons. Additionally, this gospel, gospel requires that you believe in 66 books that are God-breathed without error in the original autographs that are infallible and authoritative. You say, Pastor, what if I'm a, a person who believes the gospel but I don't believe in the authority of Scripture? I would say you are on the thinnest ice you've ever been on in your life. There is a chance if you don't believe in the authority of Scripture, you are still utterly unconverted. Why? 
because the word of God works saving faith into his people and gives us the ability to believe and delight in and cherish and cherish the word of God. And so the gospel requires that you believe in one savior, the God man, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. It's being ashamed of a proposition, but it's not only an exclusive gospel, it's a narrow gospel. It's a narrow gospel. You remember what Jesus said in the high priestly prayer, John 17, verse 3. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you. He's praying to the Father, that they may know you, the only God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. By definition, he excludes every other world religion. It is the historic Christian faith that is the only valid religion in the eyes of God. So it's a narrow gospel. Third, it's a, it's a dogmatic gospel. I actually love the word dogmatism. H- how many of you would consider yourself to be a dogmatic person? I hope so. Right? Somewhere along the... I, I hear this all the time. Oh, John MacArthur's really dogmatic. Well, good. That means I want to listen to him. He knows what he believes. He's convict about, convicted about what he believes. And so I want a dogmatic preacher who believes in a dogmatic gospel. Simply put, this gospel has no room for competitors. It has no room for other religious leaders. It has no room for other religious movements. Finally, this is an uncompromising gospel. The claims that the Lord Jesus Christ makes are absolutely indisputable and require absolute, complete, and total allegiance. Now, this should come as no surprise as we have discovered that the Apostle Paul began his letter to the church in Rome by referring to himself as a, do you remember, a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, a slave of the uncompromising gospel. So as we think about the concern of the gospel, the first, first thing we can be ashamed of is a proposition, a proposition. But there's a second thing that may cause shame in the heart of a person. That is, you are ashamed of a person. You're ashamed of a person. And there's only one person I'm referring to. You are ashamed of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The person who is holy, holy, holy. The person who makes demands. You remember what he said in Matthew 16. He told his disciples, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is a person who not only makes demands, this person makes judgments. For example, the thought occurred to me that that Jesus loves people in the LGBT community. Let me just say that again. Jesus Christ, the God-man, loves, loves people in the LGBT community. He loves them as individuals. But He tells people, unless they repent of their sin, they will surely not enter the kingdom of heaven. But he not only loves people in the LGBT community and tells them unless they turn from their sin and believe in him, they will surely not inherit the kingdom of heaven. He says this to other kinds of people. He looks at heterosexuals and he loves them. He looks at the swindlers and the drunkards and the revilers. 
and the crooks and the thieves and the murderers. And he loves them. And here's what he says to them. He says, unless you turn from your sin, you'll spend all eternity in hell. And bear the weight of all your sin forever and ever and ever. In Matthew 16, 26, Jesus says, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Finally, this person not only makes judgments, this person makes challenging assertions. We all know who we're referring to right now by the person, right? This is Jesus. Jesus says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Take that message onto First Avenue in Linden and tell a self-made man on Father's Day, without Jesus, you're nothing. Yeah, but I'm a millionaire. You're nothing. Yeah, but I built this business with my own two hands. You're nothing. You see, Jesus makes challenging assertions. He says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and he withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Here's what I hear in the church. Some people say there are churches who say you must keep the commandments of God. They must be legalists. No, actually, they're just following what Jesus said. Because Jesus says, you must keep my commandments. I want you to look at a final area. The fourth heading. That is the consequences of being ashamed of the gospel. And Jesus clearly defines the consequences of being ashamed of the gospel in Mark chapter 8. If you would turn there with me. Mark chapter 8, verse 38. This is the consequence for the man or the woman or the boy or the girl that is ashamed of the gospel. Jesus says, for whoever is ashamed of me. Now, before you read on, you should be making a mental note like, oh boy, I hope this isn't me. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with his holy angels flip back to romans chapter 1 and in steps the apostle paul who says i am not ashamed of the gospel Paul is not sheepish. He's not timid. He's not apologetic. He does not make excuses. Never once does he backpedal. There's there's never any equivocation in Paul. He simply says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. How could anyone be ashamed of such a wonderful gospel and such a wonderful Savior? It's absolutely mystifying. Now, I know you've heard pastors and teachers and someone giving a lecture say, and now in closing, you ever been there? And now in closing, and you're there for another hour. You're like, why did he even say that? So now in closing, (laughs) this is going to take a while. 
I want to sum up. And I want to have you think carefully and deeply with me. Because when we understand the consequences of being ashamed of Jesus and his, and his gospel, it leaves us in a very precarious position, to put it lightly. Because if we are honest, as I've already indicated, we've all been there. We have all been in a classroom. We have all been seated in a coffee shop. We've been in a restaurant. We've been in our living room. We've been in your friend. You've been in your friend's living room. You've been at the mall. You've been on the baseball field. You've been on the basketball court. Where you're in a setting where you know if you make a bold statement about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that may be the last time it ever occurs. And so you... You stand back, you withdraw, you shrink back. Even the Apostle Peter struggled for a season of being ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ before Jesus died on the cross. So I want you to think with me about some reasons for cowardice, because really that's, that's the essence of what it means to be ashamed of the gospel. What is the cause of cowardice? What causes us to shrink back? There are several things. One, perhaps your mind has been clouded by the world system. Again, you've been duped by this worldly ideology. Number two, a heart that is hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That is a possible cause of your cowardice. Or number three, perhaps you have priorities that are totally out of whack, priorities that are totally misaligned. Or number four, a life that has been taken captive by worldly philosophy. And I would argue this, that if, if you're seated here at church this morning and you say, yeah, I really struggle with being ashamed of the gospel, it's probably, the root cause is probably all four of these put together. And that is a powerful, toxic combination. You say, what is the cure? If, if my heart has been drawn to being a coward, what is the cure for cowardice? And there's a one-word answer. It's a simple answer, but it's something that needs to happen in all of our hearts. The one word cure for cowardice is repentance. That is to say, we must turn from the world system. We must turn from the deceitfulness of sin. We must turn in such a way that now our priorities are in alignment with the kingdom of God. And what you will discover is that when your priorities are aligned with the kingdom of God, you become a very content, happy person. Why? Because you're doing it God's way. You're living God's way. We need to turn from man-made philosophy. My Uncle Paul used to refer to philosophy as fool-osophy, F-O-O-L-osophy, the study of foolishness. We need to turn aside from foolishness and foolish ideology. For some of you, it's time to, to draw the line in the sand. You have lived in such a way that you're telling the watching world, I am ashamed of the gospel. And you may have never said, I am ashamed of the gospel, but the way you live, the way you walk, the way you talk, the kinds of people you associate with, you tell the watching world, I am ashamed of the gospel. 
And so what does a move look like? What's it mean to, to draw a line in the sand? What's it, what's it look like to live in such a way that you are no longer ashamed of the gospel? Well, instead of being ashamed of Jesus and his gospel, God is calling people to stand courageously. He's calling us to stand courageously. And standing courageously in the marketplace of ideas involves strong proclamation. It involves strong proclamation. There is a, a verse that is etched on the wall when you enter Christ Fellowship. And the reason that I requested that that verse be placed strategically on that wall, because of, it's because it's so very important. It says this, Him, Jesus Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. To proclaim means to declare. It means to say it loud. It means to announce it. It means to celebrate it. It means to preach it. But pastor, I don't have a pulpit like you have. Au contraire. All of you who are followers of Jesus Christ have your pulpits throughout the day. Some of your pulpits are on the sports field. Some of your pulpits are in the classroom. Some of your pulpits are in the office. Some of your pulpits are in your backyard. Some of your pulpits are in your neighborhood. We're called to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. J.I. Packer refers to the gospel as a, quote, proclamation of divine sovereignty in mercy and judgment. A summons, I love that word summons, a summons to bow down and worship the mighty Lord on whom man depends for all good. Its center of reference is unambiguously God. That's biblical proclamation. And so now I want to close with a few very pointed Lines of application. How is it that we can proclaim this gospel? What does it look like? Number one, strong proclamation must always be Christ-centered. The kind of proclamation that God requires does not water down the hard edges of the gospel. There's a pastor I heard recently speaking about child discipline and the rod. We all know what the rod refers to, right? And so we see how some of you are going, ooh, boy, here we go. This pastor cited the, the rod verse and said, now don't, don't get all excited. It's not what you think it means. It, what? It means spanking in love. And so you, you, don't, you don't soften the, the, the hard, difficult edges of the gospel. This kind of proclamation must be gospel-centered. It does not minimize God's sovereignty. It proclaims that Jesus died on the cross for sinners and was raised for our justification. It proclaims that sinners will be forgiven when they believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. J.I. Packer says the preacher's task is to display Christ. And I hope I've communicated that you're all preachers in your sphere of influence if you're a follower of Christ. So the preacher's task is to display Christ, to explain man's need of Him, His sufficiency to save, His offer of Himself and the promises as Savior to all who truly turn to Him. And to show us fully and plainly as he can how these truths apply to the congregation before him. 
Strong proclamation must be Christ-centered. Second, strong proclamation must be unabashedly bold. Paul says this in Acts 17.23, This I proclaim to you. There's that word again. This I proclaim to you. More and more as we move forward as followers of Christ, we will need to be bold. We will need to choose to proclaim a bold message. And we begin here that God is holy and you are not. We begin by saying God is the creator of all things. And he holds the creation accountable for their sin. Number three, strong proclamation must be fearless. In our culture of cowardice, even preachers who stand in the pulpit like this backpedal and compromise the precious doctrinal realities of Scripture. And the thought occurred to me that we, we can scarcely remember when the Puritans preached about hell and the doctrine of election and the sovereignty of God and the lordship of Jesus Christ. Do you know that all four of those things, I have had people over the last 28 years tell me you shouldn't preach that. You shouldn't preach about hell. You shouldn't preach about the sovereignty of God. You shouldn't preach about the lordship of Jesus Christ. And you certainly shouldn't preach about the doctrine of election. That's for people who are further along in the Christian journey. The theological response to that is hogwash. That's hogwash. We're called to proclaim the word of God fearlessly. Paul says in Acts 20, 20, that I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house. Next, this proclamation must be comprehensive. That is, we don't leave anything out. Again, in Acts twenty twenty seven, Paul says that again, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Number five, strong proclamation must carry the full weight of biblical authority. Listen to how Paul puts this in 2 Timothy 4. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, and this should... Send shudders down your spine if you're not doing it. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say that preaching is logic on fire. It's my all-time favorite definition of preaching. Logic on fire. Strong proclamation. And I think we've run out of PowerPoint slides and you've probably run out of space in your notes. I'm going to keep going. Strong proclamation must have a sense of urgency. It must be blood earnest and have a sense of gravitas. Paul says in Acts 20, 31, Therefore be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Strong proclamation must be theologically robust. 
Al Mohler says, as the theologian, now he refers directly to the pastor, the pastor must be known for what he teaches as well as what he knows, affirms, and believes. The health of the church depends upon pastors who infuse their congregations with deep biblical and theological conviction. And the primary means of this transfer of conviction is the preaching of the Word of God. Finally, And this time, in closing, I promise, strong proclamation must make a lasting difference in the hearts and the minds of people. Lloyd-Jones said, Preaching should make such a difference to a man who is listening that he is never the same again. Listen, if, if you leave today and you're the same as you were when you walked in at 9.30, something needs to change. Again, preaching should make such a difference to a man who is listening that he is never the same again. And so I would ask this morning, are you ready to draw the line in the sand? Are you ready to to get rid of cowardice once and for all? Are you ready to leave cowardice in the dust? So I implore you, I, I beg with you, beg of you to stand courageously in this ungodly culture that we have been placed to be a bold proclaimer of the truth. Can you stand with the Apostle Paul? And can you say with the Apostle Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel. We'll find that this is the first and important step of living the gospel-saturated life. Next week we'll pick up where we left off. And look at the rest of verse 16. Let's pray. Father, what a challenge we've received from your word this morning. We thank you once again for for really backing us into a corner and helping us to see the danger of being ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, may we follow Paul as the example here who put the statement in writing, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. May we have courage in the culture that you have placed us. May we understand the context of the gospel. May we be willing to explain it to people in the culture in which you have placed us. Lord, familiarize us with the content of the gospel. The gospel that says that Jesus Christ lived the life that we could never live and he died the death that each of us deserved to die. Lord, help us to be very tuned into the concern of the gospel. May we never be ashamed of the propositions that lie within the gospel. May we never be ashamed of the person who is at the center of the gospel. That is your son, the Lord Jesus. And Lord, may we be warned this morning of the consequences of being ashamed of this gospel. Would you stir your people up? I pray for, I pray for young people, especially today, God, that you give them courage as they live the Christian life, but as they do more than live the Christian life, as they proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Give them courage, give them strength, and may, may that spread like wildfire here in Christ Fellowship and all through our community. Now, as we have time for extended worship, may, may you do a special work as we continue to sing these songs all to the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen.